Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. I am Boris Karpa. Today we have with us somebody who is quite an accomplished researcher, has published over 30 articles, has been involved with uh, the Modern War Institute as a visiting fellow, also a veteran of the U.S. Coast Guard. We have Jay Overton, who is here in uh, because he is, is the editor of, and this is quite a mouthful of a title, Na- Naval Contributions, so, so, sorry, Sea Power by Other Means, Naval Contributions to National Objectives Beyond Sea Control, Power Projection, and Traditional Service Missions. Well, uh, welcome to our show, Jay. I'm so, I, I hope I didn't uh, miss anything out when I, when I read that. No, thank you, Boris. You're right. It is a kind of unwieldy subtitle there to get everything in. Exactly. So appreciate it. You got it great. <laughs> so, you know, of course, you know, I've read, you know, I, I always read the books before I, you know, as I prepare for the interview, but most of our audience probably has not read the book yet. And so just so you can... Just so you know, we can explain it to our audience, to the people who are now following along on their on their iPhones or whatever. Not all of them have access to the website with the book summaries. Can you tell them a little bit about this book and what it brings to the table and what it is about? Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed this podcast for a while. Um, I'll start since I've had associations with a few U.S. government agencies by saying uh, all the opinions I'm expressing here on the podcast are mine alone. Um, On to the book. So, yes, it does have a pretty uh, the subtitle is definitely unwieldy, but it's the the book itself is an exploration of the things that navies and naval services like Coast Guards and even Marine Forces uh, do and have done that falls outside of what they're actually designed and maintained to do. Not just other operations and activities, but operations and activities which actually contribute, sometimes unintentionally, to the objectives or advancement of their respective nations. I started putting this together in 2021. Um, if you think about that year, that's when the U.S. military was, uh, as they still are, preparing for a return to great power competition. And the uh, U.S. chief of naval operations was describing his services' reason for being as, of course, the traditional power projection and sea control mix. Um, But while that's going on, U.S. Navy medical personnel were deployed to the Navajo Reservation in Arizona and New Mexico in the U.S., uh, very far from contested shores or sea lines of communication, to vaccinate Native Americans against COVID-19. And U.S. Navy bases were housing thousands of refugees from Afghanistan, and U.S. Navy ships and aircraft were providing humanitarian assistance to Haiti. That's soft power projection, of course, but it's not really what those platforms were built to do or necessarily what those uh, sailors and personnel were, you know, thought they were going to be doing when they joined up. Um, at the same time, also there, we're having often often tense maritime interactions uh, between the People's Republic of China and the United States. And even then, U.S. naval forces were doing missions like mountaintop search and rescue and still smugg- smuggling enforcement and even domestic disaster relief. Uh, seemingly unrelated to the early predictions of the return to great power competition. It's not really a new phenomenon, as we argue in the book, or it's certainly not one unique to the U.S. Navy. Throughout history, we've had uh, navies and sea services have spent a significant part of their time and resources doing what uh, 
the late Samuel Huntington called, quote, a Navy's subordinate and collateral responsibilities, unquote. It's something they do and they might be expected to do, but not what they're provided and maintained to do. Uh, those responsibilities have at times contributed way more to their country's security, prosperity, and identity even than traditional roles. And also at times they may have been done uh, due to just a lack of emphasis on actual fighting and winning wars. Whatever the reasons, they're more. I, I argue that these activities are more common and persistent than grand battles and great ships, but they just receive far less attention than their frequency merits. So our goal of this book was to highlight some of these overlooked achievements, examine how they might inform current and future naval operations. Um, perhaps a more accurate title might uh, title might be sea power with other means as i sort of mentioned i believe that's closer to the original clausewitz reference and of course naval forces can often perform their traditional and non-traditional roles simultaneously um and i also something we that i guess i didn't mention there really wanted although i i'm in the u.s um really wanted this to be as international as possible so it's uh it's put together by a German um, think tank there, ISPK. Uh, we have great contributors from uh, Nigeria, from other countries in Europe, uh, Canada, Australia. Um, we had a, a retired admiral with the Dominican Republic Navy who expressed interest early on and wrote a really great forward for us. So it is a very um, international of looking at what navies do. And of course, we're talking to you across the world right now. So there, a little bit about the book. And so, you know, as I always say, we on this show, we are creatures of tradition. And, you know, because you know, the, the title of the book, the subject of the book is somewhat unorthodox. You know, the whole idea of naval, uh, 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 naval contrib uh, contributions beyond, uh, you know, beyond, beyond sea power, uh, sea power by other means. It's not a very orthodox title and not a very orthodox subject. And so... I'd like to ask how did you how did you end up choosing the subject? Sure, thanks. I will. I'll definitely grant. Uh, not very orthodox, and and uh, again, I, I called out right in there and the subtitle. Yep, not very traditional. But I, I think you know, work with me here. I think we'll get to there is. I would argue these some of these things are actually traditional because they've been going on a while. Um, perhaps because my air quote naval service was in the U.S. Coast Guard, as mentioned, um, and even then uh, when I was in for my four years there. So I was at units that don't do what most people think the Coast Guard does. I guess since then, for 30-something years, I've been drawn to lesser-known or uh, unrecognized military history subjects. Even leaving inside most of my own very tactical level, level experiences, still, uh, most of what militaries do day-to-day -day isn't necessarily what most people think they do, I would argue. Um, this book came about, really, I would presented papers at the U.S. Naval Academy's McMullen uh, Naval History Conference a few times before. And those were always sort of my my subjects. My papers were always sort of shoehorned into panels with either other one-off papers where there you couldn't really get them together in much of a group um, that dealt with some navy subject beside grand battles. Um, so I thought uh, there in 2021, I thought I'd see if there was enough interest in getting a panel together that specifically dealt with the very broad subject of this book. Um, I put out a call for papers and really just put the. Uh, book's title I came up with here and a little bit explanation there and just thought I would see what I'd, what I'd get in, putting out calls on uh, SIMSEC, on Society for Military History, on uh, HWAR, HNET. Um, and the, I got really good papers came in from lots of 
good researchers, um, established academics, folks still in naval service. Um, and the panel was accepted by the folks at McMullen. And then while I was at McMullen, I met uh, Sebastian Bruns from ISPK, uh, who was teaching at the Naval Academy at the time. And after a little correspondence, he expressed interest in a book on the subject, which I was already sort of seeing if there was enough interest, uh, enough people who would contribute something to that. So the idea of which I was pursuing anyway uh, there, and we went from there. That's how the book came about in a, a very short, came about, of course, over the course of a few years, as these things seem to do. But that's the, the short answer to that. One of the one of the topics which several of the authors in the book address is, of course, the role of the Navy in diplomacy. And usually people think about these, you know, we sometimes read about these in the papers, these fleet visits, these uh, naval visits to foreign ports, and usually this idea, you know, even people, even the historians, you know, when they talk about these naval visits, and outside the really big and famous uh, famous ones, outside like a few exceptional events, like the Great White Fleet, but, uh, m but most of these are just sort of, uh, you know, as oh, this is some uh, pomp and circumstance and navies of the world do out of politeness, it's not really that important, but that's not true. These visits are actually play play some kind of role, which we laymen don't understand. I I'll agree. Yes. So maybe you can educate us a bit. Certainly, I didn't know about this, and you know, I'm an I'm a naval historian. So if I didn't know, certainly it's something you should maybe clarify to our readers. Sure. Our readers. I, I would argue almost everything in this book, on a I guess a small d diplomacy, uh, has something to do with uh, you're either uh, you know doing a something to uh, your internal stakeholders there or um, external outside of your own country. So I'd argue almost everything in the, in the book uh, has some, something to do with diplomacy, even if it's just, you know, rescuing a, someone from a mountaintop or a flood or something within one's own country. If it's doing done by the Navy, it's somehow at least, uh, you know, doing community relations, somehow that's a, uh, fosters good feelings for the Navy. Um, from the book, where it gets quite specific on this, uh, the real expert uh, from her chapter is uh, Dr. Katrina Ponti. She wrote the books, we start out the very first chapter, and probably the one that goes back farthest in time, is called Our, Our, Our Proud Spirited Fellows. And that's about the U.S. Navy's role in diplomacy with South American nations in the early 19th century. This is a time when the U.S. Navy is already global to some extent, but of course it's dwarfed by the navies of Europe's empires. In the in the time she mentions, uh, we have, it's actually U.S. diplomats traveling aboard U.S. Navy ship to Brazil uh, rather than on a merchant ship. Usually they would travel apparently on just a, you know, a charter a, a ship, but this time it was decided to send them down on one of the U.S. Navy's nicest, newest warships. Uh, um, she talks about this quite a bit, and, and they uh, made a big point of making sure that the Sailors going down were, I guess, looked a little bit, sailors and Marines on their ship looked a little better than the uh, average sailor or Marine at the time. Um, just really wanted to put as a, a very young Republic air. And they're not just talking to Brazil, really. It's still when you have the Portuguese empire to some extent, though. So, so um, they really want to make a good impression. Uh, Dr. Ponick includes her chapter with the quote, the activities of the South America Commission, which is the group that goes down here, a uh, diplomatic mission, encapsulates the uneven application of U.S. foreign policy in the early 19th century and its cultural and political preference for the development of republics in the Western Hemisphere and by, quote, serving as cultural surrogates for American national identity. So 
there she's saying in some ways if you know when when you send a navy ship abroad whatever it's doing it's in some ways i think serving as a cultural surrogate for the country it came from so she says uh, goes on to say together the navy and state department propelled american foreign relations forward and articulated a cultural vision of republicanism that's republicanism with a small r uh, for the hemisphere that being the Western Hemisphere. I think the cultural surrogate might again be the best holistic description for naval diplomacy. Uh, this chapter also deals with Navy and interagency work, and that's a very common theme throughout, particularly in the last chapter, which calls for a maritime department. But uh, again, I think almost everything in there, every chapter in the book, in some ways is going to deal with it. You're going to see a little bit of diplomacy going on there. Thank you. And just to move on from this a little bit, you know, and this is something which not only the United States Navy does, but, uh, you know, any Navy does this to some extent. Uh, your book discusses uh, discusses uh, uh, the United States Navy and the Royal Navy, but of course other navies have performed other similar roles in the past. You know, in the Messina earthquake in 1908, the Russian Navy famously, you know, if you go to Italy, you will see it. I think it's at, it might be in Sicily, I don't remember. You, you will see monuments to the, the you know, courage of the, and uh, benevolence of the Russian sailors who have provided this assistance. So, so you know, and, and Navy is, uh, uh, navies traditionally have, you know, a tertiary role, they, they provide humanitarian relief. You know, sometimes it's uh, you know actual actually the ships, which will you know, the ship the ship you know might be somewhere in the ocean, it might be near some place where there's a disaster, uh, or there might be there might there might be you know like you describe in the your author describe in the book. Sometimes the ships will. I'm sorry. I hope you do not hear that. No, it's fine. <laughs> Uh, there's some machinery which is working in the background. Oh, no. <laughs> That's <not hard. laughs> and the, but the, the thing which I'm trying to say is that navies are by their nature set up. They have the facilities, they have the skills where they can provide aid. Mm. It's one of their traditional roles, and maybe you can tell us more about this uh, function of navies as uh, you know, the, the delivery organizations for international aid. Sure. And that's also mentioned in, in almost every chapter in the book in some some way of it. some A few chapters really hit on it specifically. Um, so ships, of course, can carry more people and material and usually for cheaper and carry it farther than about any other form of transportation. Um, so it's that's a, you know, I won't say easy mission, but it's one that falls pretty easily within their capabilities. And there's something to the fact that if a ship or an aircraft and its personnel are capable of operating in a contested combat environment, you know, sustaining themselves there with their own logistics, um, doing so with minimal support infrastructure, then they're already prepared to a great extent to help out after natural disasters. They don't, even if the, like in an earthquake there, even if the... Uh, shore-based infrastructure is damaged they you know a, a amphibious ship uh is or even before those were came about of their own special classes they were still often able to um you know bring men and supplies uh, material personnel uh, supplies ashore without they they didn't necessarily need uh, port facilities there those were nice but they could probably do it without those 
um, plenty more recent experiences of this. Um, the U.S. Navy and other international navies um, after the Indonesian earthquake and tsunami in 2004, I believe it was uh, a massive international effort down in that uh, area there, Southeast Asia. Um, Japan's Navy and other navies after the or Japan's uh, Defense Force and other navies, including the U.S., after the Japanese earthquake of 2011 there. Um, a U.S. Navy, which I'm more familiar with, um, does many smaller tasks like uh, assisting with flood re- relief in civilian communities. That happens fairly frequently because uh, if you we have if you have a, a helicopter and crew who can rescue a let's say a downed airman or rescue people from a sinking ship, they can probably also do things um, you know within if if they're standing by somewhere in the U.S. or uh, either in their shore base or on a ship, um, they're probably equipped to help out with things going on there. Um, it's not infrequent in the Northwest where I live for Navy search and rescue helicopters, rescue civilian hikers stranded in the wilderness of mountains up at multiple thousands of feet. Um, just cause again, they, they can do it. They're available. It's also you know, good training, but, uh, and it's very helpful. And I would argue that's also probably some level of not necessarily diplomacy, but it's, it's creating goodwill. It's still, you know, doing something uh, useful because they're around for that. And that, of course, again, not really what those were expressly designed to resource to do, but they can do it. And mostly there's no other agency uh, that has that capability. Um, the book has examples of this, uh, Navy bases, which, uh, house refugees. And again, that, the, the, time mentioned in the book here goes back to the 1990s or refugees from Haiti and Cuba but of course that was used in uh, there were there were bases used to house uh, refugees coming back from Afghanistan in uh, 2021 there um, so anyway it's still happening uh, the two chapters of the book that really deal with this a lot are the uh, deal with how the United States and the British Royal Navy aircraft carriers transported refugees and returning troops and even what they called war brides um, from overseas back to their home after uh, World War II. And a lot of people, I think, just see an aircraft carrier as being a very, you know, having one function there, very specific, very important, but a specific function. But using them essentially as, as transports for this sort of thing was something I think a lot of people don't know about. And it's not, again, not a new function. This goes back nearly 80 years. And just to move on a little bit from emergencies and to something which is more routine, you know, and of course, this is not so much in the United States today because the United States, you know, has more or less uh, has all, you know, has a very developed industrial complex already, but you know, in in some other countries, and in the book, there's discussion of this happening in Nigeria, and it was also prominent in some countries in in you know in the past. For example, you know, in 18th century Russia, this was a big thing, where the navy is a driver of socioeconomic change. You know. Sometimes, if there's a shortage of skilled professionals, then the Navy will take on the role of training them directly or subsidizing their training, either to build the ships or sometimes to serve on the ships. And, you know, sometimes if there is known, for example, in, you know, in Israel, we, our shipbuilding industry currently is receiving assistance from the Navy because we want to build better shipyards to build certain ships which the Navy wants. 
So, so you have all these ways in which sometimes the Navy can, you know, uh, be the driver of socioeconomic change in the country. And so can you maybe tell us a little bit more about navies and their role in national development? Sure. And there is, as you mentioned, there's a few places in the book to talk about that. The one that talks almost specifically about that is the is a great chapter on uh, Nigeria about how just post-independence, uh, so many facets of national life there early in post-independence period were impacted by their new navy, everything from trades to sporting events, and how uh, also there there is uh, he mentions you know, it's it's not all just uh, sugarcoating how much the navy helped out there. Uh, it also talks about there were issues with uh, corruption and with people not wanting the navy, you know favoring certain companies, that sort of thing. But how still they did a lot of things, I guess, on a small d diplomacy. Um, he calls it um, corporate social responsibility, the same things companies do now to win the goodwill of of the communities, which weren't necessarily always a fan of the Navy coming in. And that's, I think, been true in most places. It's a, you know, a large Navy presence can be a, is, is a, be an economic driver, but also there's probably some challenges that are going to happen there. Um, in the book, on a smaller community level, um, you've got a really great essay on how the city of Groton, Connecticut, here in the U.S., was shaped by the U.S. Navy presence there, in particular the submarine force, which is at the time was fairly new, um, and that's been going on again since for most of the last century, and still very much Groton is still kind of the submarine town here uh, in the U.S., still where most submariners go for their training. Um, also mentioned essay uh, on a proposal for a naval station in Central America that goes back from the early 1800s, um, pre-Panama Canal, that a, a U.S. businessman and kind of entrepreneur uh, put forward. It was never really realized, but the story is insightful in how the U.S. in that period, before even the Spanish-American War, uh, so many U.S. citizens and politicians were essentially trying to, hoping to make us an empire there, and then sort of spread that, what you're talking about, spreading national development uh, beyond our shores. Uh, and also then to, to bring it back to very recent times, I mean, we, I guess, like like Israel, and again, much more familiar with America's Navy and shipbuilding, or the U.S. Navy shipbuilding here, um, that not having enough skilled workers to build ships is a, an issue here. And there's also lots of training programs, apprenticeships that you don't find as much in uh, the civilian world now to get a, to bring up our industrial base. So people, we still have the sort of the skilled trades and craftsmen to build ships. And a lot of that is still being driven by the Navy here. So that's also something that's been going for a long time, as mentioned in the book, but uh, it's still definitely ongoing in the U.S. where everybody still has sort of challenges with that, that and the navies are still sort of jumping in to help out with that. So it's an ongoing process. It's not something which just happened at some point in history. It's right, even right, for the I United States, so an ongoing process even now. Yes, it's not like, cool, we got that done. Now let's move on. So, yeah, we're still a, it's still an ongoing process. And even if you did, for instance, in you know training up folks in World War II um, to, to build the ships we had there, that was a huge deal. But then, but then uh, those are often, you know, the ship after the wars, shipbuilding often... Um, you know, becomes less of a thing and, and you lose those skills. You don't have that corporate knowledge over time. So uh, keeping that going, and that is something that I think our uh, Navy here does. And for just, you know, the other role of a Navy is where it is, you know, a sort of, has a sort of police function. And it's not really new because it's always existed to some extent, you know, in 
in graduate school, we, 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 I learned about how the Royal Navy, you know, uh, dealt with tea smuggling into the British Isles. Of, of course, in the, in the 19th century, there was uh, there were the anti-slavery squadrons. And so there's always been... And of course, in the United States, one of the purposes of the gunboat fleet was to serve as as customs collectors. And so there was always this always existed to some extent, but recently, you know, as the book explains, there has been the emergence of the navy in the anti drug uh, the anti drug rule, which is very much returning to the anti smuggling activities which navies used to have. And of course, in some countries, to some extent, the navy also deals with environmental protection, and sometimes it serves as a regulate as a regulating body as well in terms of uh, safety on ships. And so, uh, in, the, in the United States, technically, the Coast Guard is not part of the navy, but it's also a naval force of a sort, and it, it also acts as a as a regulator. Yes, so, absolutely. Uh, navies are also very recently there was a prominent uh, incident in the Pacific with a uh, with a diving boat fire which was investigated by the Coast Guard. Yeah, and so, yes. <laughs> and so naval forces are now acting as police and regulators. And I would like you to a- I'd like to ask, to what extent do you think this is like a new phenomenon, and to what extent do you think this is just an extension of what we've seen in the past? Sure, I, I think it's uh, probably as the book points out there, it's definitely an extension of the past. It's people who think it's new, or just because they're, I think that they're, uh, what they know about navies comes from. Like we said, sort of the grand battles, if they're familiar with the Battle of Midway or Jutland or something from that, you know, Tsushima Straits, um, that's what they think navies do. But it's a very old process in the in the although the U.S. Navy traces its foundation back to 1775. A lot of people don't know it actually all the ships were sold off and it was pretty much by the mid 1880s uh, or 1780s. Rather, it was there, there wasn't really U.S. Navy um, when Alexander Hamilton, who was uh the Treasury Secretary here um, decided to start up what he called the a fleet of cutters or the Revenue Marine in 1790, based on the uh, British Custom Service, uh, seagoing Custom Service there, um, to enforce laws and and stop smuggling. Um, so, if you had no when it when a country was was pretty much brand new, um, you couldn't really project power or control the seas very far away. But law enforcement was. I look at that as being law enforcement being sort of the first thing you needed to do as a fairly new country. And you see that mentioned kind of in the one on Nigeria. Um, I, and I think also it just can come about because there's really no other government agency for most countries with the capabilities to do those things. Um, Sean Andrews' essay on the Royal Australian Navy's role in fisheries, and he's actually a captain in the Navy, so he should know these things. Um, he writes an essay on uh, the RAND's uh, fisheries patrols it gives that mission as a very old one again, going back to you know when they're when Australia's navy the first sort of becomes its own, separated from Britain, and even uh, that's something they're all still doing there, of course. Um, and on a side note, his line, his title is my favorite, and the his subtitle is my favorite in the book, which is "Hook, Line, and Sinker," um, 
We also have a Walker Mills has an essay on the role, particularly in the 1980s and 90s, of the U.S. Navy U.S. Navy's involvement in counter drug operations, which, of course, is usually something you think of as a Coast Guard and Customs mission, and that suggests that this was done in part to show Navy contemporary relevance to post Cold War security environment. You know, once. It said the Navy had sort of control of the seas against other nation states. They just needed something to, you know, you needed to make sure they were still of relevance. And that was definitely a security concern then as it is now was drug smuggling. Um, it's not explored in the book, but the U.S. Navy also has a history in fisheries patrol. Um, one of the panelists from the McMillan panel we had actually was uh, Blake Thomas Earle gave a presentation. And he just published a really great book called... Uh, the liberty to take fish, and that deals with this. The earlier American Republic, the the Navy's uh, issues in the Atlantic, trying to make sure that a U.S. fisherman could have access to that. So, I think again, like humanitarian, all the uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, to some level, a diplomacy, um, helping build up uh, the communities uh, there around for as a economic industrial base. This is something that some people see as a new mission, but it's really old and again far more prevalent, I think, than the again than the the big navy operations that a lot of people think is what the navies are mostly do. Yeah, yes, and you know, Walker is a very you know, is a very insightful writer and we've had him on this show before. Oh sure. And he writes more than I uh, I think he publishes more essays than I write emails to guys. Incredibly prolific. But I would just like to push back a little bit about something in the book, in the discussion of counter-narcotics operations. And again, according to what, uh, you know, what that chapter in the book says, just, uh, you know, it says, you know, okay, we've done all of this, we've done all of this, uh, all of these operations, we've deployed the Navy to stop the cocaine, we've intercepted this and this many of these cocaine boats, We've captured so so many tons of cocaine, but it's not really you know. But the amount of the stuff which is getting into to America's streets hasn't declined. We again, according to the book, and so so and, and I'm and I and I'm thinking as I look at this, you know, okay, so what is you know if we've done all of this counter smuggling activity, but there hasn't been you know we haven't stopped the smuggling, yes. So so. Is it really now? Had America been an island, you know, like you know, like like you know, Britain is, of course, a series of islands. Australia is an island. Maybe, maybe on an island country that's more important. But I just like to question a little bit this counter smuggling role in the context of big countries. Which you know, which have land borders like the United States. What's going on here? Sure. Yeah, I will. I won't necessarily take issue with the fact, you know, the questioning of its, I guess, relevance there. Again, part of the books like to explore, and if it's these are some things other navies have done, and if in fact they didn't end up being that successful, that's also you know it's worthy of exploring. Um, what it suggests, I guess, and I guess what reality it what, the effort obviously wasn't wholly successful. Um, uh, drug wars have been going on for many decades, and I think the question of what winning looks like is still unanswered. I mean, it's unlike a battle where there's obviously one person in charge of the field or who has you know command of the local sea area. There, um, this is a law enforcement, and so you're despite saying winning the you know, the war on crime or whatever, that's not probably not going to happen. 
Um, that role, uh, the, the counter-smuggling, counter-drug op, is obviously certainly not what the U.S. Navy says are its mo- most important roles today, and I don't probably didn't even say it was the most important then. Uh, but I think like many of the non-traditional missions mentioned in the book, even if it didn't completely succeed or result in some sort of resolution of the issue at hand, there were likely collateral benefits that came from that. Uh, maybe within the Navy, uh, you're learning new tactics, getting more experience with interagency work. That's certainly a thing. Uh, maybe just keeping funding and training going on um, until something, you know, a real world during a period of, of decreased need for, again, for the primary missions. Uh, similarly to that, I, I think um, the role the U.S. Coast Guard played, which of course is usually the counter-smuggling one, the re- uh, role mentioned in the book, what they they played in what would be considered more traditional U.S. Navy roles during the early years of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, they used their law enforcement and and basic na- aids to navigation roles, which they've you know do in peacetime. There, they were able to use those and apply those to a wartime contested environment. Even while they were, the Coast Guard can go under the U.S. Navy during times of war, even though they didn't, as a complete service during this one, go under the U.S. Navy. They still were working with them and able to apply some of those roles. So I, I like to think there was some sort of, you know, a, ideally a, pros- a positive cross-contamination. Everybody learned a little bit from each other, even if the stated objectives perhaps weren't realized as much as um, folks would have liked. edited this book and... I think that, you know, if you've edited a book on the subject, this makes you an expert. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, expert badge, yes. Sure, okay, I guess so. I know, yeah, uh, close enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh. And, you know, so uh, I'd like to ask you, where are we sailing, you know, in terms of you've, t- you've talked about different roles of navies and how they evolve and do you think that we're what are, what are we going to see in the in terms of the evolution of naval roles in the near future i i appreciate the expert thing i don't i i put together a lot of content from really great experts here and if i if i am one it's just because i read their stuff um i learned an amazing amount from reading all the stuff here but i'll, I'll go back to the book on that question i think <clears throat> pardon me we're seeing some evolution of operations discussed in the book. I mean, we've got a piece about the British Royal Navy's role in the origins of strategic bombing during World War One, which they actually um, saw as an extension of uh, the blockade at the time of land-based aircraft uh, piloted by uh, Royal Navy folks uh, bombing Germany. They saw that as an extension of the blockade. We don't necessarily think of uh, strategic air power as a blockading, you know, force. But that's how they saw it, not really as power projection. So um, um, that's way before we have aircraft carriers, of course. But I'll say, like, now in Ukraine, um, you've seen levels of sea control practiced in the Black Sea without having an actual Navy um, or a float platform to do that. Of course, in the Red Sea and uh, uh, from Yemen, you're seeing naval forces are, are striking arguably strategically uh, inland forces again not really something surprising in 2024 and but it was revolutionary uh, you know 110 years ago and that's that of course is still evolving still seeing how you the the, the concepts that the, the non-traditional roles of navies uh, were able to be used to maybe still bring about the general thing that navies were supposed to, we think navies are doing but perhaps their platformed and assets aren't being used the way we 
necessarily think they should be. Um, while the majority of the book is focused on history, the final essay from Jimmy Drennan is called Beyond Navies and Beyond Defense, the Case for United States Maritime Department. And this one definitely looks to the future for the most part. I mean, he used a lot of historical case studies, but he's looking to the future there. He makes the case for what he believes is a preferable future for the U.S., um, where you would have a rather than a, a variety of agencies managing, um, overseeing the, the various seagoing aspects of america we would have a more a more combined department in there because you we don't we have a maritime department we have a transportation department uh or maritime administration transportation department department of homeland security which has coast guard under it and customs under that of course department of navy but they're not always um, aligned he argues there so that was his, uh, this again came out, he wrote that a few years ago, but just late last year, the Secretary of the Navy in the U.S. gave a speech calling for what he called a new uh, maritime statecraft. And he quoted, quote, in a broad sense, this encompasses not only naval diplomacy, but a national whole of gov government effort to build comprehensive U.S. and allied maritime power, both commercial and naval. So you know, it's it was going forward when the this was written in the book, and it is at least being pursued in reality right now. And I, I recall in the last few months reading that it was questioned why the, some commentators questioned why the U.S. had aircraft carriers and amphibious ships in the Middle East if it wasn't about to essentially bomb or invade um, in the Israel, intervene in the Gaza, Israel-Gaza conflict for some, you know, a, a more kinetic approach there. And a, a few navalists, knowing more about this, jumped into the conversation there to point out that those types of ships and their crews can do a lot of other things, like evacuate civilians, provide medical care, deliver humanitarian supplies. So if you're just used to, if your you know, knowledge of naval forces is just something like the Battle of Midway or a, a landing at Iwo Jima or Okinawa or D-Day, something like that, you may not be aware that the, these types of ships and the people on them can do a variety of things, and they're still doing those. Um, so I think that's helpful to be aware of. And I, again, part of the book here was to get these other means into the conversation, at least to provide a more accurate picture of how naval forces are and can be used. And lastly, of course, as we say in the book's intro, these various non-traditional roles, as I'll, I guess I've probably said this too much here, but they're not really new at all. And as long as naval forces have these capabilities, which are unavailable to other organizations or agencies, and needs or crisis arise, and the naval forces can meet those, even if not perfectly, at least better than the other options, then I'd expect they'll continue in the future. And this brings us, you know, as I mentioned, we are creatures of tradition. <laughs> I've mentioned this before. You know, if you've seen Fiddler of the, Ro of the Roof... One of my favorite movies, in fact. You know, uh, Rev Devia explains, about the, uh, explains the importance of tradition, so do I. <laughs> And uh, I'd like to, um, I'd like to conclude our show also with a traditional question. And as I've, uh, you know, as we started out, this is a we are after all the new books network. The books are right there in the title. And I'd like to ask you, what are you reading as, as, right now? Is there some book which you would like to tell us about? Oh, sure. Where are I... you in your in your book journey? Sounds good. I've got a few, but first I will have a know that I will have the uh, opening song in Fiddler stuck in my head the rest of the day, and that's that's not so bad. It's a great song. 
I can do a mean Tevia alone by myself. Um, so I'll start out with the panelists from the McMullen Naval History Panel that I talked about putting together back in 2021. They've all had books on their topics come out since then. Um, and I've got a... One of the, mo the moderator from that panel had a book come out just before. So I'm going to recommend those for some extra concepts on sea uh, power by other means. So, you know, hopefully you read this book. But here's a few I've just read recently that are all, all on a similar topic, if you found this interesting to our listeners. Dr. Mike Verney, he wrote a book called A Great and Rising Nation, which is about uh, early U.S. Navy exploring expeditions, um, including one to the... Uh, Middle East there, went to what's now Israel there, um, also uh, exploring in Antarctica, exploring on the U.S. West Coast, back in the early American Republic. So really good book there, good for a, an academic. These are all, I would say, good for academics and also just for the casual reader who wants to learn more. Dr. Jason Smith, who was our moderator there, he wrote To Master the Boundless Sea, the U.S. Navy, the Marine Environment, and the Cartography of Empire, and goes into some of the early... Uh, science that was developed uh, by the U.S. Navy. And again, I apologize, most of these are kind of U.S. centric, um, but how the U.S. Navy developed into things like uh, early sciences there, cartography, oceanography, that sort of thing. Really interesting. Dr. Will Murray, Murray wrote a book called Newsrooms and the Disruptions of the Internet, a Short History of Disruptive Technologies from 1990 to 2010. Uh, Will did a, he, he is a, uh, Media comes from like a media uh, historian background, but he was also a Navy reservist, um, so he mixes those a lot. Uh, he did a great paper for the panel on the U.S. Navy's pioneering use of shipboard movies in the 1930s. Again, definitely not something that was probably the one that fell farthest outside of what people would think sort of navies were set up to do. But he gave a really good argument for the uh, the role those played in the as as the Navy was expanding. And back, I mentioned it earlier, but. Uh, Blake Thomas, The Freedom to Take Fish, uh, which I mentioned about early uh, 1800s U.S. Navy in the operations in Atlantic, so making sure U.S. fishermen could uh, essentially establishing a kind of, attempting to establish a kind of sea control. So U.S. Navy fishermen, uh, which was very important to the economy then as it is now, um, could fish in the Atlantic, even though from the, the small, new little country that was America. And then lastly, I'm co-editing a collection um, called Fighting Surrounded with uh, Tim Heck, and I'm reading a whole lot of essays coming in, uh, really great essays and proposals uh, for this book, which we hope to have out sometime in 2025. So I've been spending some time with all of those. Thank you. You're welcome. And once again, of course, when you finish this book, and uh, as you said, uh, next year, you are welcome on our show again. As I That's always fantastic. say, happy to do it. As I always say, you know, nobody writes just one book. Uh, when you, and you, when you, when you finish, uh, when you finish it, when it's out, you're always welcome here. And thank you. Of course, I, I, I thank you for being here with us today, Jay. Thanks. Thanks so much for us. It was a great time. I really appreciate you and uh, all the listeners there. Do good work.